turn, please, to Acts chapter 9. We are continuing to work through the book of Acts. The reason, as I've said to you in the past, that the elders chose the book of Acts is because we fundamentally believe that, as I just prayed, the mission of this church is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. That is why we exist That is not some tasteless task, that task that Jesus has put before us to make Him known is a task that will bring us the greatest of joy, for in this we see the restoration of sinners, including us. For you see, as we rehearse over and over in our church, The gospel does not just give us the promise of escape from fire, of being pardoned from eternal damnation. It does do that. It is not less than that, but it is more than that. The gospel promises us renewal, restoration, hope. When the gospel is embraced, when when Jesus is believed upon, we are renewed to the original design progressively over time. For when God told Adam and Eve that they would die if they partook of the fruit in the garden, He didn't mean merely that they would organically die. He meant something more than that, that they would be separated from His very life. But through the gospel, we are restored to this. We find life once again. Fear progressively is dealt with. Anxiety is, over time, exposed and replaced with hope. Self-worship and fruitless idolatry is exchanged for life in the giver of all things. And so the gospel not only promises us that we can be released from judgment, but it promises us restoration. So what is it that the early church was doing? They were finding restoration in Christ. They were being renewed to their Creator, their Savior that had died for them and been raised from the tomb. He was making them new. And what were they doing? They were, they were going all over the place telling others that they could be made new as well. So what is, what is it that we are experiencing here as those who are trusting the same gospel? We are being made new. And the truth of the matter is we have the good news to go tell others how they can be made new as well. So we've chosen the book of Acts so that we could see what it is our mission that we are supposed to all be engaged upon is. What are we to be doing? We are to be finding renewal in Jesus, the risen Lord, and telling others how they can find that too. That's why we're here. And what we'll find today in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43 is that the early church just kept doing that over and over again, and therein lies our charge as well. What we'll find here in this text is that the Lord Jesus is doing all of this, but He's using the church as a means 
They are not the Savior, but they are the method whereby He brings renewal. So as we begin today, we will find great responsibility that is laid upon us. But it is not a crippling responsibility. It is a responsibility of joy, for the source of power behind it is Jesus. Let's read together in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. This is God's holy word. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Anus, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Anus, Jesus Christ tells you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics, and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord." And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May the Lord Jesus bless to us the reading of his word. The first thing that we find here in our text for today is that Jesus is overcoming the tragic effects of the fall. We have seen this already back in chapter 3 when Peter and John go near the temple And the lame man, the beggar, is healed. Throughout Jesus' ministry, you see this over and over again. Jesus causes people who can't walk to walk. People who are blind, they are restored to sight. All kinds of sicknesses Jesus takes care of. Demons inhabit the hearts of fallen image bearers, and Jesus drives them out, bringing His kingdom into the kingdom where Satan dwells. Jesus even raising people from the dead. But as Jesus promised His disciples, He would not leave them as orphans. It was actually better that He went away, He tells them in John's gospel, because now Jesus is not just healing and rescuing and renewing Himself, He is employing and empowering His disciples wherever they are found to do these same things. So, Jesus is carrying out His rescue mission, His mission of restoration, to make all things new, to undo the effects of the fall through the Christians, through the disciples, through the church. And He is doing the same things in our day and age as well. 
Jesus is overcoming the tragic effects of the fall. Frankly, it's hard for us to measure how deep that goes. How deep do the effects of the fall go? Well, to, to every part of us, right? To every nook and cranny. Seemingly, even creation itself, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, is affected. Paul says that creation itself is groaning, experiencing the effects of the fall. So it seems like mountain ranges changed. Maybe weather patterns change. Those of us who live in Ohio believe that, right? Ohio weather is an effect of the fall. A lot of you believe that. It might snow tomorrow. Isn't that good news? We see chaos in creation, right? We're afraid of storms, some of us. Things that can destroy our homes, take away life. Disease that in days gone by wiped out maybe 40% of Europe. Effects of the fall. Sickness today seems like just on a cursory level that the human genome keeps getting worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? Some of the things that, that children are facing now, I don't remember when I was a young person. Sickness, both physical and emotional. We see all around us people who struggle with emotional and mental health. We struggle with anxiety, fear, and inward problems that, that no one else sees on the surface, but it affects them tragically every day and it affects their relationships. Marriages that can't quite seem to hold together. Parent-child relationships that sever. We see the effects of the fall all around us. Occasionally we are tricked into believing that man can fix this. Every four years or so in our country we are duped into believing, some of us, that things might get better with the most recent political candidate who's Positions and platform lines up with our ideals, and then most of us, after maybe just a few weeks, realize that that's not the case at all. And some of us are saying, "Told you so." We won't go into that too deeply, right? I mean, it's it's a mess, right? Jesus, however, understands every nook and cranny. He sees it. He sees what has happened, and he sees what is happening. And ultimately, the design of the redemption of Jesus Christ is that He would restore us to Himself, not just causing us to escape the fiery pits of hell, but to bring us back to Himself in total dependence and total joy. That's what it was like for Adam and Eve in the beginning. They were fully alive. We've never had a day where we've really fully experienced that. Now, it's coming, but it's not here yet. But as we gaze back at Adam and Eve, and we just have the, the scantest of information about that. 
I would love someday to, to ask God, why didn't you give us more information in Genesis chapters 2 and 3? Tell us more about what it was like. But, but that mystery causes us to long for what is coming. When there be no more tension with our spouse. We will never be cross or angry with our kids. Where all of our friendships will be marked by total fulfillment and complete harmony. Where we'll never be disappointed with our leaders. Where our bodies will always perform like we want them to perform. Baseball season is underway. I love baseball season. I'm a Reds fan, so that's not that fun. The Reds have two wins this year, uh, and that's terrible. This is excruciating to watch. My wife loves to watch the Reds. By like the third inning every night, I'm like, let's just turn it off and watch Jeopardy or something, right? It's awful. But one of the reasons I love baseball season is I get to uh, be with my son as he plays baseball. So we had a scrimmage the other night, and there was no umpire there. So I had to be the umpire. And it's like getting to be higher level baseball now, and the ball goes a lot faster, and they hit it a lot harder, which means that if you're behind the plate without any gear on, and you get hit by a ball, it really hurts. So I have a big bruise right here. If you really feel sorry for me, because I got a foul tip the other night. Um, uh, I think I might have a broken toe as well from another one. But it's super fun. And, you know, I'm leaning over and acting like a an umpire. I've watched baseball my whole life. It was kind of fun. I had actually never umpired before, strangely enough. But I went home, and it was like 9.30 or so, and we had to go to the store and get some food and things. And, and I could barely move. I'm not that old. Now, those of you who are like 13, you think I'm super old. I'm not that old. I'm 41. I felt like I was 90. My body is breaking down, which I'm sure, of course, my wife will tell me when I get home I need to eat more greens and run with her more often, which is probably true. But someday our bodies won't fail us anymore. And that's what this passage encourages us with. This is several years after Jesus has been resurrected and gone back to be with the Father. And the church is pretty healthy. We know this from the end of our section last week. The church around the area of Israel was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. And it kept multiplying. So what were the apostles like Peter doing? They were taking trips throughout the region, checking on the churches. And so he comes to Lydda, which is northwest of Jerusalem, headed toward the Mediterranean coast, and finds this man named Aeneas. And he'd been bedridden for eight years. That's a long time. I feel pretty good today, but like three hours after a baseball game the other night, I was really upset. I wondered how long it would last. If I don't feel good for eight minutes, I'm worried, right? This guy was bedridden for eight Eight years. He couldn't take care of himself. He was completely at the mercy of other people. If you've ever been this sick, most of us haven't. If you've ever been this sick, this is, a, this is the kind of condition that, that puts you at the mercy of others. This is a very uncomfortable place to be. You can't do the things you used to do. You can't work, so you wonder if you'll eat. You can't get around. Your joy often is completely sapped. So not only are you facing this physical malady, inside you're troubled too. 
And it's not like you can forget it, right? It's not like you can say for just like a few days, let me forget for a moment that I'm bedridden. You can't. It's with you all the time. It defines you in many senses. Peter comes down and finds this man. And I don't know how long the conversation went. I don't know if he hung out with the saints for a little while, and they said, hey, we've got this brother who's part of our, of our church, and, and he's paralyzed, and he can't move. And Peter goes into him and, like, kneels down beside his bed and comforts him a little bit, maybe. But Luke is super economical with the way that he explains this. He comes to him, and he just says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And he doesn't seem to argue. He doesn't seem to like lay there for a minute and start stretching his fingers and his toes and testing out his legs. He just gets up. Now, if you're paralyzed and bedridden, not only can you not do things, your, your muscles have atrophied to the point that you couldn't do anything even if your condition was changed. This is a really miraculous healing. This is not a guy who was suddenly paralyzed and one day later has some sort of like nerve block that goes away and can stand up. His body was incapable of doing this. Notice Peter does not draw attention to himself, but he says, Jesus Christ heals you. I'm just his conduit. He's using me. And it's interesting here, he says, to make his bed. This wasn't because Peter was a legalist who wanted things neat and tidy. Peter wanted to say to him, now you can take care of yourself. You have been unable to to do anything. You've been at the mercy of another, which is an incredibly uncomfortable place to be. Jesus Christ is making you whole so you can take care of yourself. And then he just gets up. And then notice what Luke says in verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon, these have been small towns, but nevertheless, all the residents, saw this man who had been dependent and incapable, and they turned to the Lord Jesus. That's the result of the restoration. Jesus empowers His people to take His good news and all of its effects, and He transforms people. Now, if you're a savvy person, you're looking at this text and say, can, can the church still do this today? Well, there's nowhere in the Scriptures that says that this is impossible. I've never seen it personally. I've heard of things. And in some way, all of us know somebody who was healed in some way that was unexplainable by science or medicine where there was not perhaps medical intervention and and somehow they were healed from some malady which was clearly verifiable. Most of us have, have heard of something like this. And I guess the way that I would answer the question, can the church still do this today, is that's the wrong question. The question is, can Jesus still do these things today? And the answer is yes. So much of what passes for miraculous healing in our day and age is a farce. 
And we know this in large part because it draws attention to the healer rather than to the one who is from heaven doing the miraculous work. Notice Peter does not draw attention to himself. He draws attention to the Lord Jesus. Jesus can do whatever He wants whenever He wants. And the effect of this was that He got glory because people trusted Him. As Jesus overcomes the tragic effects of the fall, what's the result? It's faith. It's worship. Could Jesus bring healing to sick people in our midst? I hope He will. I think we should pray for it. Our brother Paul Chandler seemingly can't, to use an English idiom, can't catch a break. Paul was in the hospital for several days this week because the device that has been placed into his head, which sends electrical currents to one of his nerves to deal with the pain that's uh, in his head, uh, one of the leads poked out his skin and they had to remove it because infection was beginning to uh, get into his head. I mean, the, poor, the poor guy just can't catch a break, it seems. He's home now. Uh, the infection's being dealt with, and, and hopefully another surgery's coming, which will uh, maybe take care of this long-term illness that Paul has been facing. What should we pray for Paul? Should we pray that God will comfort him in the midst of his suffering? Of course we should pray that. Should we pray that God will use us to ease his suffering? Yes. Should we pray that God will miraculously bring healing to him? Yes. And can Jesus do that? Yes. And and then what would be the result of that? We would be in awe of Jesus. And then Paul, the one who was sick, could tell his friends and co-workers what Jesus had done for him, which might then in turn draw their attention to the one who is making all things new. See how this works? When Jesus does miraculous things, it points to Him as the one who gives life and restores life. Only He can. Only Jesus can do this. Jesus has overcome the tragic effects of the fall all over the world. He's been doing it for millennia now. And He's doing it in us, perhaps in more subtle ways. Maybe you don't have a a bedridden kind of condition. That's not your label. We have other labels that we wear, labels perhaps that people have given to us or labels that we have given ourselves. You might say, I am a person who is marked by pride. That's, that's my overcoming label. I'm a prideful person. Some might say, I'm a person who struggles with overwhelming lust. Some of you might say, I'm a person who's marked by by anger. Others might say, I have have hidden things inside. Things that only my counselor knows. Will we be healed this side of eternity? I mean, completely. Completely. Will our mental and emotional health diagnoses, our physical maladies, our our besetting sins, will all of those be totally 100% healed this side of the restoration? And by that I mean the final one. 
when, when we're with the Lord Jesus and he takes his, his finger and wipes away every tear and says, I'm making all things new. Not completely. We are going to have those nagging effects of the fall in one way or another until then. But we can trust Him in the here and now that, that He will work. And we should pray that He will. If you have emotional and mental health struggles that you are seeking help for from a counselor medicinally, keep doing that. But pray to the Lord Jesus because ultimately only He can make you new. Do you have physical maladies that are frustrating, even debilitating at times? Pray to the Lord Jesus because ultimately He's the giver and restorer of life. Do you have characteristics and habits which hurt you and then hurt others? Why are they there? They're there because of the fall. Who can help you turn from lust and instead delight in God? Only Jesus can. Lust doesn't have to define you. Who can turn you from pride to pursuing humility? Only Jesus can. You can't work your way into that. Who can turn you from an anxious person into a person who trusts reflexively? Only Jesus can. And as he does that, you go tell your story. And those who know you well will see it. And then Jesus gets the glory. And then people who themselves are struggling, who are experiencing in every nook and cranny of their being the effects of the fall, they'll look and say, I want that too. But if we don't speak of it and we don't show it, how will they know? And it's not okay that they're just out there in our communities languishing in fear and anxiety and brokenness. Brothers and sisters, we have a story to tell. Tell Jesus' story. Tell your story. And this is how the effects of the fall are overcome for them. Jesus is making you new for you. And Jesus is making you new for them. We are the church this morning, gathered. In just a bit, we are going to scatter, and we all have a story to tell. And your story is very simply, Jesus is making me new. This is what he's done. This is what he's doing. This is what I'm trusting him to do. Brother, sister in your community, you have no hope. He's your only hope. Turn to him. Now, you probably won't say it just like that. I would suggest you don't get super preachy and yell like I'm kind of doing right now. But open your mouth and speak and let them see what Jesus is doing. I will say to you that he will not waste a minute of our suffering. The blind man in John chapter 9 who had been blind from birth, why was he blind? According to Jesus, so that God's glory might be shown in him. Why was Aeneas bedridden for eight years? Why? So the glory of Jesus would be shown. I imagine that if you had caught Aeneas like a week later, I'm sure he was still making his bed every day. So for you kids whose parents are telling you to make their, your bed, it's in the Bible. Okay? 
Acts 9.34, parents. Put that on your Pinterest chalkboard at home. I suspect that if you would have asked him, Aeneas, were those eight years excruciatingly hard? He would say, you have no idea. They were awful. And if you were to say to him a year later, Aeneas, was it worth it? I think he would have said to you, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because I know the power of God. And here we are 2,000 years later reading about this poor guy who languished in obscurity and an inability to even help himself and now we look back 2,000 years later, his name is written down as an object of grace. And I say to you, you think you're alone, you think nobody sees you, the Lord Jesus sees you. He made you. He's rescuing you. He's making you new. You are a trophy of his grace. May we stand as memorials to what he has done and is doing. But as we go down into the passage, we find that not only will he not waste a minute of our suffering, even death will not have the final word. Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, she was, by all accounts, a super saint. Every church has a few of these, right? Our church is great. There's so many wonderful people here. But when you think of the people who serve, like, tirelessly, that when you're with them, you think, clearly they walk with Jesus. I wish I had half the faith and energy they had. We've all known people like that through the years, right? I can look back at my childhood and, and my church, and two or three names come, come to mind just like that. I knew they walked with Jesus, and they served tirelessly. That was Tabitha. That was Dorcas. Notice in verse 36, wouldn't you like this set of you on your epitaph? She was full of good works and acts of charity. Like she wasn't hot on Monday and cold on Tuesday and like pretty decent in spring when it got warm and then fell off in the summer. And that wasn't what marked her. She was marked by good works and acts of charity. She was dear and precious to this church. Joppa was up on the Mediterranean coast, a little further northwest from where Peter had been in Lydda and Sharon. Today it's currently known as Jaffa, if you want to look at a map, if you like such things. This is a pretty important port town. It was pretty important missionally. If this town could be reached for the gospel, it could reach the surrounding region. And as we will learn as we get down into chapters 10 and 11, this becomes really critical in the mission of the church. Peter is not just wandering around aimlessly. Jesus is directing him to specific towns and cities where the gospel can get out. So there's sovereign design behind all of this. This means that in some ways, even Aeneas, who was bedridden for eight years, he was bedridden for eight years so that the gospel could get to his town. And then to Joppa, and as we will learn in chapters 10 and 11, to the rest of the world. So let's, let's just take a minute and pause. Let, let's blow ourselves back outward for just a minute and get a bird's eye view. When Adam and Eve fell the whole world fell because everybody came from them, right? 
That means that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, would, would fall under the curse of sin. God chose a man named Abraham through whom he would not only build a nation, but through that nation bless the world. By and large, that did not happen in the Old Testament because they lived in isolation. And by and large, they were a miserable failure who didn't keep covenant with God. So how would God keep His promise to Abraham that He would build a nation and bless the world? Well, that's, that's why Jesus came. Jesus, born as a Jew, would bless not just the Jewish people, but the entire world. That's getting ready to happen in Acts chapters 10 and 11. It's already been hinted at in the first part of Acts chapter 9 when Paul is converted and Jesus says that he will be his apostle to the Gentiles. What's happening here at the end of chapter 9 and then in chapters 10 and 11 is transition. This is massive stuff going on here. The gospel is about to break out of the environs of Israel and get to the whole world. This means that what happened to Aeneas and Tabitha Dorcas was under the sovereign design of Jesus to get the gospel out. It has been said that we often in our suffering perceive Jesus to be doing one or two things when he's doing 10,000. That's what's going on here, but that's for next week. This woman, full of good works and charity, dies. This would have been a tragic blow to the church. She was so faithful, she was so invested in them, and they were so blessed by her that they wondered to themselves, what are we going to do? Well, they hear about Aeneas, and they send messengers down to Lydda and Sharon, and they ask Peter to come up there. Now, just to be clear, she's really dead. Like She's not in some sort of coma. She's, she's really dead. They've already washed her and prepared her for burial. Peter comes up, goes with them, and sees all, in verse 39, the widows weeping beside her, showing Dorcas Tabitha's good works. She made tunics and garments. The suggestion is that she made them for those who couldn't make them themselves. They were incapable. They were perhaps so poverty-stricken, these widows, that they couldn't even afford the material to make themselves clothes. James will say later, the brother of Jesus in James chapter 1, verse 27, that pure religion is taking care of widows and orphans. What was Tabitha doing? She was, she was the real deal. She had pure religion. She seemed to be a woman of means. She had, she had enough. But not just for herself, she had enough for others. Herein lies a suggestion that if God has blessed you with stuff, leverage that stuff to bless others. When I was a kid, my favorite cartoon after school was DuckTales. Any of you watch DuckTales when you were a kid? Right. Cartoons today are terrible, by the way. I have four boys, and I watch some of the things that they watch, and I'm like, stop watching that. That's terrible. But I can't find DuckTales on TV, so I can just tell you about it. But one of the great things about DuckTales when you were a kid is that you saw this man who had this sort of like this tower that he had built, this concrete tower, which was seemingly impregnable, although the, the Beagle Boys, I think, were their names. They are always trying to break in and get his money. But, but like once a day, Scrooge would get on his diving board and jump into his money, which was all metal somehow, like... Like a $100 bill is worth more than a coin, but his coins were like all gold, I guess. And he would swim in his money. It was fascinating. In a way, that's what we do here in the bubble of the suburbs. 
I'm not sure that there's ever been a more dangerous time to be a Christian than this one. And you say to yourself, wait a minute, like, our, our government allows us to worship. Like, I, I don't expect that any stormtroopers are going to come in here today in, like, full SWAT gear and put us against the wall and say, deny Jesus or we'll strike you dead. I don't expect that. We have things built into our, our, our laws which protect our freedom of assembly and religion. Thank God for that. The danger is not so much from our government obstructing our freedoms. The danger is all around us because it insulates us and makes us think we're okay. And then eventually what happens is we become numb. Because all the things that we have, if we're not careful, become our gods. Right? Let's be honest. As much as we know that we shouldn't worship our money, how much of us do? How many of us do? How often do we do it? If we gave half as much attention to Jesus, who alone can make us happy, as we give to our stuff because we think it can make us happy, how much further along would we be? Has there ever been a more dangerous time to be a Christian than this one because our hearts atrophy and can so easily become choked by our stuff? So then if you're a savvy person, you think to yourself, is stuff bad? Should we just abandon our stuff? Should we, should we go live an ascetic life somewhere in the desert? The monks tried that. If you read about the early church, some of the early monks would go into the desert and build themselves a wooden platform, and they would live out there by themselves, and they would wring the dew from the morning and drink that, and that would be their only drink, and, and maybe once in a while someone would bring them a little piece of bread, and they would just meditate and pray. Paul tells us very clearly in his letter to the Colossian church that asceticism cannot make us more holy. The answer is not for us to sell everything and go somewhere and isolate ourselves and meditate. The answer is that we look at our stuff as blessings and then leverage our stuff to bless other people. That's what Dorcas, that's what Tabitha did. And, and look what that resulted in. The church was deeply blessed. Are, are, are we living in such a way that if we went away, the people around us in our church would be sorrowful because of our influence going away. You say, well, I don't have a lot of money. I know a lot of people in this church have money, but I don't have that much money. You have other stuff. You have time. You have gifts and talents. I know wealthy people who, who really aren't the most gifted people when it comes to service. Now, if you've got both, bless you. But there's no room for those of you who say, I don't have a lot of monetary means to say, I don't have anything to give. Now, in some way or another, in this context, we all have something to give. So give something. As we give to our church, we're able to bless those in need. And, and most especially, we're able to leverage the gospel here and around the world as we give our money. That's why we give here, so that the gospel can get out. But whatever you have, and most of us have all three things, treasure, time, and talent. I'm not a big alliteration guy, but those three things are good, right? Treasure, time, and talent. Most of us have all those things in, in varying degrees. Are we like Tabitha and Dorcas, leveraging those to bless others? 
Well, the church was hurt because she was gone. And they asked Peter to come. Peter sees the effects of her life. She had blessed the helpless. She had taken care of those who were in desperate need. And he makes them all go outside. Of course, they would have been tingling with anticipation. And he kneels down and he prays. Peter, again, did not have the power inside of himself to fix this problem. Just like Aeneas had been raised by Jesus Christ out of his bedridden state, the only thing that could cause Tabitha to come out of this dead state, she was really dead, was Jesus. And so Peter prays, I don't know how long, and he turns to the body, which seems like a fool's errand, and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she does. And as a gentleman, he gives her his hand, and he raises her up, and he calls all of her friends who depended upon her and who had been blessed in spades by her, and he presents her alive. This is the biggest thing that had ever happened in Joppa. And what happened, just like in Lydda and in Sharon, many believe in the Lord Jesus. And he stays with them for a while to teach them, to help them to know more about Jesus. And this prepares him for what's going to happen to him later in chapters 10 and 11. Aeneas and Tabitha would say to us that Jesus is overcoming the tragic effects of the fall. He won't waste a minute of our suffering, and even death will not have the final word. Turn with me, please, back to John chapter 11, where Nate read for us earlier. Did Jesus know that his friend Lazarus would die? Yes. He made Lazarus, so of course he knew. Could he have prevented Lazarus from dying? Of course he did, because... Jesus not only gives life, He sustains life. He allows Lazarus to die for a reason. So He says to Lazarus' dear sister Martha in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. And He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? As best she can, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Nate did not read these verses to us earlier, but in verse 33, when Jesus comes to the tomb and sees Lazarus' friends weeping, John says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This same phraseology in Greek is sometimes used for horses that are annoyed and whinny out of anger and irritation. Jesus was deeply troubled by what he saw around him. Then in verse 35, he weeps. He's troubled by the effects of the fall. He's seeing it and he weeps over it. 
And then he says in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then he prays, verse 41, and in verse 43, he tells his friend to come back to life, and he did. Peter saw that, and Peter was never the same. So he believed the Lord Jesus could make Aeneas walk again. He believed that he could make Tabitha come back to life. And do you realize that when you trusted the gospel, you came back to life? You were united to Jesus in His death and resurrection. And one day, even if organically you die, one of the tragic effects of the fall, you will come back to life for forever, and everything will be made new. Now, He's doing that now, and He's given you a life and a story to tell other people how they can come back to life and have hope forevermore. Jesus is overcoming the tragic effects of the fall Every nook and cranny, he will not waste a minute of our suffering, and even death will not have the final word. That is our hope, and that is our message. How do we respond to this? Well, first, let us take courage. Our trials and suffering are never outside of our Lord's providential love and design. Are you sick? Jesus knows he won't waste it. Are you troubled? You struggle with debilitating anxiety and fear. Jesus knows you won't waste this. Is your story in the past checkered? Broken relationships, unspeakable things. Take courage. Jesus is working and he won't waste a moment of it. This means that when the trials come or If you're in the midst of it now, if you feel like you're in the ocean in a life raft, take courage. And I will say to you practically, employ other people in your struggle. And I'll say to you, if you know someone is struggling, go to them. Point them to the one who is their anchor. Speak to them words of truth. It is so easy for us to talk about things that don't matter at all. I I guarantee you, even though what I'm getting ready to say, uh, that hopefully you're all hearing, I guarantee you that over half of you, the first part of your conversation after our service today will be about the weather. That's what we do, right? I'm so tired of talking about weather. But that's where we go because it's like this comfortable, safe place. It's Switzerland or something. That's, that's a place we can go and not go deep with people. You know somebody's struggling? Go ask them, how's it going? No, like I really mean, how's it going? And don't, don't put up with their, oh, I'm okay statement. De- that's a deflecting statement. Dig in. Ask probing questions. My wife calls these back pocket questions because they're always with you. How can I pray for you? How can I serve you? What's been the hardest thing you've faced this past week? How are you doing with fear? How are you doing with anxiety? Could we sit down together for a few more minutes in these really comfortable metal chairs and read the Bible together for a few minutes and pray together? Could we do that together? I don't care that it's gray out there. I don't care that it's going to snow tomorrow. 
I don't care maybe that it's going to be sunny again on Friday. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about stuff that matters. Employ other people in your, in your story. And those of you who are not hurting right now, or maybe you are, run to those who are hurting and help your friend take courage. Yeah, you may be telling them stuff they already know, but they need to hear it from someone else. Secondly, and lastly, let us live and speak of Jesus' power to rescue and renew. So right now we're the church gathered. And while we're gathered together today, bless each other. But we're going to scatter in just a bit. So, so go live and speak of Jesus' power to rescue and renew. Only He can. Your neighborhood where you live, the people who live in this, this numbing, dangerous bubble like we do, their job won't save them. Their marriage won't save them. Their kids' travel sports won't save them. Only Jesus can save them. So tell them. Now that's hard, right? It's hard. So begin with something simple. Have them over for food. That doesn't sound that profound, right? Have them over for food. Invite them in. And maybe the first time you meet with them, or maybe the first five times you meet with them, you don't give them the gospel. But you show them that you're a real person who can talk to them about real things other than the weather. But then you have to get to the gospel. Once you have built goodwill through the power of hospitality, speak the words of life to them. Tell them your story. That is a great segue to do that. Tell them your story. Tell them how Jesus is making you new. Tell them how you've sought for hope and solace and happiness and all these other things and how that well always ran dry, but how Jesus is the one who gives you the water of life and that well never runs dry. Now, will everybody you speak the words of life to believe? No, we know that. But you're not the one who saves. Only Jesus can. James tells us that we don't have because we don't ask. So pray that the Lord Jesus would bring others into your lives who need the gospel and who will hear it. And then go work at it. Live and speak of Jesus' power to rescue and renew. He's doing that in us. Thank God for that. In every nook and cranny of us, He sees it and He's injecting His power to save into those. The disease of sin is being overcome by Jesus. There are tens of thousands of people in this city alone who have no conception of that whatsoever. And that's why we're here. So may the Lord Jesus be pleased to make us new through and through. And may he use us to speak the words of life that others might be made new through and through as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for your glory.